Hello, and welcome to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and now that we've laid all the contextual groundwork, we finally have a Caliph to talk about. Islam's first Caliph may not have ruled for very long, but his reign defined the position for his successors as it set the expectations Arabs would come to have of their leader. So let's get started with episode 4, Abu Bakr. I feel kind of bad about naming this podcast The Caliphs than making you wait three whole episodes before introducing one, so let us just dive right in. We've already met Abu Bakr in episodes 2 and 3, but a quick refresher never hurt anyone. Abu Bakr must have been born around 573 AD, and he was the son of a rich merchant of the Taim clan of the Quraysh. As a 10-year-old boy, he met a 12-year-old Muhammad while the two of them were on their first caravan trip out of Mecca. Within a few years, Abu Bakr seems to have entered into his father's business, the cloth trade, and done very well for himself. He even became his clan's leader while his father was still alive, quite an achievement in tribal Arabia. Most Sunni histories enthusiastically maintain that he was the first man to accept Islam at the age of 40, and he was given a second nickname by the Prophet, al-Siddiq, or the Believer, for being the one who accepted his revelations most readily. It's clear that he was among the closest people to Muhammad his entire life, and after his conversion, Abu Bakr brought some prominent Meccans into the young religion, which, as we've mentioned before, was otherwise much more attractive to the poor, slaves, and those shunned by their tribes. In Medina, Abu Bakr remained a close confidant to the Prophet, and he resumed his cloth trade which flourished once again. He seems to have taken a minor role in the first couple of battles, but was given a commanding role in the Battle of the Trench, and was later trusted to lead the siege of Ta'if after the fall of Mecca. In both the battles of Badr and Mount Uhud, his son fought with the Quraysh against him. In Arab warfare, at the start of a battle, a few fighters come out and challenge the other side to a duel. Abu Bakr's son filled this role during those early wars against the Muslims, and Abu Bakr would furiously try to challenge him, but was always asked to desist by the Prophet, who was probably worried about losing his friend. His son would later convert, change his idolatrous name from Abd al-Kaaba to Abd al-Rahman, and become an asset of the Arab armies. Abu Bakr and Muhammad remained close throughout the Prophet's lifetime, and Sunni histories make much of the fact that when the Prophet got too sick to lead prayers towards the end, it was Abu Bakr he asked to lead them in his stead, implying that he kind of saw Abu Bakr as his next in command. As the new leader of the Ummah, Abu Bakr now had some pressing issues to deal with. Many tribes were turning away from Islam, saying they had sworn an oath to the Prophet and the Prophet was gone. The loss of these tribes must have dismayed the Ummah, but the real cause for alarm were those that went the extra mile. A handful of tribes now claimed that God had sent them prophets of their own, and each went about trying to replicate Muhammad's success. Their prophets were all tribal poets who now said they'd been contacted by God and offered Qur'an-esque verses as proof. Their emergence is a testament to how firmly the Arabs still held on to tribal conceptions of legitimacy. The Prophet himself must have foreseen this, as he had repeatedly reminded his companions that he was the last messenger that God would send to the Arabs. One of these new prophets on the block, Atulayha, whom we are told was a mountain of a man, was perilously close to Medina, 
already assembling allies to try and wipe the Muslims out while they were stunned by the loss of their prophet. It's a good thing then that Abu Bakr had access to an army of his own. Towards the end of his life, the Prophet had put together a force of 700 under the leadership of the 20-year-old Usama ibn Zayd. He tasked it with returning to Mu'tah to raid the Ghassanids, who had executed the Muslim emissary sent to them in 628 and defeated a Muslim army in 629, killing many prominent companions of the Prophet, including Muhammad's uncle and Zayd, Usama's father. The army was still only a day away from Medina and had stopped its march after hearing of the Prophet's passing. To everyone's surprise, instead of asking the army to return and defend the city, Abu Bakr ordered Usama to carry out the Prophet's commands. Everyone freaked out and asked Omar, who was by now Abu Bakr's closest advisor, to try and get the caliph to reconsider. When he did, he received a sharp rebuke from Abu Bakr, who said he would rather die than rescind an order given by the Prophet. This won't be the last time Abu Bakr says something to this effect, and his preoccupation with not deviating from, from the Prophet's example will be a constant theme during his reign. This all took place shortly after Muhammad's death in late June of 632. While the mobilization of the young Usama's army to Mu'tah in the south of Syria today left Medina undefended, it did contribute to stemming the tribal insurrection. Some of the tribes that had broken away were either intimidated or reassured by this show of strength, and they willingly realigned with the community. And just because Abu Bakr didn't immediately send his army after them did not mean that the defecting tribes were to be shown any clemency. In fact, Abu Bakr announced that any man who refused even one of five Islamic injunctions was to be deemed an apostate who must be fought back into the fold. These five injunctions were the Muslim testimony, prayer, fasting, paying the zakat and alms tax, and the pilgrimage to Medina. These would afterwards be known as the five pillars of Islam, which all Muslims are enjoined to uphold. It is clear that Abu Bakr saw the unity of the Arabian tribes as an important part of the Prophet's legacy, for he was willing to risk everything to regain it. The refusal of some tribes to honor these five injunctions was a clear denial of a part of the covenant they had made with the Prophet when they became Muslims, and Abu Bakr must have felt justified in fighting them, no doubt reasoning that the Prophet would have done the same. Before he could impose his new edict, however, he had to defend Medina against the tribes that had gathered to attack it from the east. Despite Osama's army being away to the north, Medina still contained many battle-hardened stalwarts who had fought for their prophet for years. By mid-July, three tribes led by Tulayha approached Medina, and Abu Bakr sent them messengers demanding their repentance. They refused, but were unsuccessful in their raids against the city and were repelled by the Muslims, who apparently rode on pack mules since all the riding camels were with Usama's army in Mu'tah. The two sides fought on and off for a couple of weeks, and despite the disadvantage of being under-equipped, the Muslims, led by Abu Bakr himself, managed to force their attackers to retreat. Shortly afterwards, Usama's army returned victorious with reinforcements, captives, and war booty. Now that he had earned some room to breathe, Abu Bakr organized his response to these various tribal desertions. He split the Muslim fighters into 11 contingents, assigning each of them a commander with a task to fulfill. Crucially, most of his commanders were of the Quraysh, so he really leaned into the reasoning he presented for why he should be caliph, that the Arabs would only accept to be commanded by someone from the Prophet's tribe. This favoritism went unopposed at this dangerous time for the Ummah, 
but not unnoticed by those who felt entitled to an equal share of leadership within the community. Tribes which had not united behind a new prophet did not worry Abu Bakr as much as the handful that had. Many of them may have broken with the community because their remoteness led them to believe they would never hear from the Muslims ever again. I'm talking about tribes on the edges of the Arabian Peninsula, in Oman, Yemen, and the northern desert. The contingents sent to these tribes were instructed to impress them with Islam's unity and call on them to return to the community. Fighting was only meant as a last resort, and the Muslims rarely faced resistance from these tribes, most of which returned to Islam peaceably. Abu Bakr reserved his best military mind for the dangerous campaigns against the pretenders to prophecy. Khalid ibn al-Walid was to command the largest contingent of fighters, and his first task was to defeat Tulayha before the new prophet could make any more trouble for Medina. Khalid was the creative commander responsible for the cavalry fane that had led the Muslims to to lose the battle at Mount Uhud. Since his conversion to Islam, however, his military prowess at commanding Muslim armies had earned him the cool nickname, God's Unsheathed Sword. I hope you're ready, because we're about to begin the first third of Khalid's incredible military career. I will be exceptionally brief when talking about Khalid's victories, and yet he'll still manage to dominate today's episode. It's unclear how many troops he had with him when he set out to face the Laiha north of Medina, but the battle took place at Bzakha, and our best estimates put Khalid's army at between five and 10,000 and Tulayha's at between ten and 15,000. Despite their numerical advantage, Tulayha's forces were defeated once more and retreated further into the Najd deserts to the east. Khalid pursued them and won successive victories, dispersing their forces and leading Tulayha to flee north to Syria, where he wrote several repentant letters apologizing to the caliph back in Medina. After defeating Tulayha's posse, Khalid was meant to make sure that no more wayward tribes operated in the area and to wait for reinforcements before heading to the east of the peninsula to fight the strongest of the rebelling tribes at Yamama. There, two prophets had gotten married to consolidate their supporters after hearing of Tulayha's defeat. They were now led by Umm Sayyidama, who had preached prophecy for a very long time. He'd even written to Muhammad once, introducing himself as a fellow prophet of God and suggesting that the two split the world between them. Muhammad's reply was addressed to Musaylama the liar, and it said that prophets had no say in the matter. God gives the world to whomever he pleases. Musaylama's tribes had embraced Islam towards the end of the prophet's life, but now backed him as a prophet in a bid for the same primacy the Quraysh had enjoyed with Muhammad's success. Musaylama's Hanifa tribe was exceptionally large as it could rely on grain reaped in the fertile eastern edge of the peninsula facing Bahrain. The Muslims expected a tough battle in which they would be even further outnumbered. While patrolling this area, Khalid committed an act that has proven controversial as Sunnah historians offer apologetic interpretations and Shia historians point to it as proof of the corruption of Quraysh's ruling class. A tax collector in Najd, sent by the Prophet less than a year earlier, had either withheld or redistributed the zakat after he'd heard about the Prophet's death. Khalid had him tracked down, pronounced a heretic, and, depending on who you read, either mistakenly let him die or eventually murdered him. The killing of a man appointed personally by the Prophet appalled many back in Medina, and Khalid's cousin Omar is said to have been incensed by his conduct and lobbied strongly for his removal as commander. 
Khalid was recalled to Medina to explain himself. But after some consideration, Abu Bakr decided that it was not up to him to sheath God's sword. Khalid was thus reinstated, and in December he led the Muslims in their greatest battle yet. Two other contingents were sent to reinforce Khalid, and the estimate we are given for the size of his army at the Battle of Yamama is 13,000 men. These faced a reported 40,000 supporters of Musaylama. Whether this number was inflated or not, the battle was bloody, and Khalid lost over 1,300 men before Musaylama was killed. The remainder of Musaylama's tribe retreated, fortified wherever they could find shelter, and wrote to Khalid to sue for peace. They agreed on paying him all the gold and silver owned by the men who'd fallen in battle and a quarter of their families to be given as captives. War booty was still an important part of any battle at this stage as none of Abu Bakr's armies received any pay from the zakat. Only orphans, widows, and those who couldn't feed themselves were entitled to what was essentially a rudimentary social safety net. During the Prophet's raids on Meccan caravans, a fifth of whatever was captured was added to the zakat money, and the rest was divided among the warriors. Abu Bakr had made no changes to this arrangement, and so the men who filled his armies still depended on the booty captured in their raids. Musaylama's coalition was the last of the rebellious Arab tribes, and with its defeat, the peninsula was reunited under Islam once more. This is a good point for us to turn back to Medina and discuss some non-military aspects of Abu Bakr's reign. There isn't much to report as Abu Bakr made no major reforms, a clear indication that he saw his main task as preserving a system rather than improving it. He divided the peninsula into ten districts and appointed one man to govern each. The governor was responsible for everything in his province, from leading prayers to public safety to making sure the zakat taxes reached Medina on time. The caliph kept a couple scribes to take care of his correspondence, and he also kept Omar around as a close advisor. He designated an empty house in the capital be used as a treasury and appointed a trusted companion, Abu Ubaidah, to look after it. Revenue came from the zakat, alms tax, and a fifth of any booty earned in war, and was divided equally among the ummah's needy on a regular basis, exactly as the Prophet had done. The aftermath of the Battle of Yamama gives us a rare example of Abu Bakr agreeing to something the Prophet had not explicitly authorized. The loss of many early Muslims in the fighting led to worries that a similar event in the future might lead to the irretrievable loss of some of the Word of God. We are told that Omar asked Abu Bakr to guard against this by writing it all down, and the Caliph initially rejected the idea, saying once more that he was loath to do something the Prophet had not asked. He eventually changed his mind, and he entrusted a man who used to work as a scribe for the Prophet with collecting the various revelations together. This was left with the Caliph for safekeeping, and neither copied nor distributed to the people, who still relied on oral transmission for their liturgical needs. As for his day-to-day, Abu Bakr gave up his cloth trade after he found it took too much time from his management of the Ummah's affairs, and he accepted a meager daily allowance from the treasury to get by instead. Apart from leading the prayers at the mosque five times a day and the pilgrimage or hajj once a year, his responsibilities were more like those of a tribal chief. He was often busy maintaining the newfound unity of the Arab tribes and was deferred to in matters of consequence. This was not all, however. Abu Bakr's role combined religious and political authority in a new and unique way because, on top of his tribal function, 
he commanded the people's respect and obedience through his connection to their prophet. He did not present himself as religiously above any of his followers, and he occasionally reminded them of their responsibility to right his actions should he begin to act wrongfully. Even during his election, his reasoning was principally that the Arab tribes would not accept to be ruled by anyone who wasn't of the Quraysh, and so it was a tribal argument, not a religious one. His closeness to the Prophet was beyond doubt, however, and people felt their special relationship had left Abu Bakr with more knowledge of their faith's prescriptions than they could claim to have. Religious questions were sometimes posed to him, but he only answered in terms of what he had heard the Prophet say. This power was what gave him control of the Ummah's money in the first place. When the Prophet's daughter Fatima asked for an oasis promised to her by her father, Abu Bakr denied her the property, proclaiming that he had heard Muhammad say that prophets could not leave an inheritance. He instead considered it part of the treasury, just like everything else previously owned by the Prophet. In fact, Abu Bakr's treasury was exactly what used to make up the Prophet's part of the community's revenue. This probably contributed greatly to his strained relations with the Prophet's clan, the Hashemites, who may have expected to inherit their kin's share instead. I know I presented multiple possible reasons for the friction between Abu Bakr and the Hashemites last episode, but this is the one I find most credible. Now that the peninsula was back under his control, Abu Bakr looked to the north, especially to the lands controlled by other nomadic tribes. The reasons for this expansionist turn are not presented anywhere, and so there's been plenty of speculation on the subject. Some point to the fact that the Arab armies had no other way of generating income, or that they would have fought amongst themselves if they couldn't exert their purpose outwards. Others point to the general weakness of the Byzantine and Sassanid empires after their recent war had exhausted their armies and a plague had depleted their populations. I think it's because we know that the Arabs eventually vanquished the two empires to their north that we assume it was their purpose all along. A closer reading of the classical sources reveals how these epic wars of conquest actually spiraled out of Arab attempts at reaching out to or punishing the tribal confederacies guarding the two empires. Musaylama's defeat had come in December, six months into Abu Bakr's reign as caliph. It was either then or a few weeks earlier that Fatima's death and secret burial prompted him to seek better relations with the Hashemites. Ali pledged allegiance to him shortly afterwards, but the rift between the two seems to have continued as Abu Bakr did not appoint any Hashemites to prominent positions during the rest of his reign. The minority of the Ansar who had refused to pledge before also came around after that, but they were similarly kept away from positions of influence. Abu Bakr also forbade the tribes that had returned to Islam after championing another prophet from joining his armies. He continued to rely on the Quraysh to fill his caliphate's hierarchy and used only the tribes that had proven unflinchingly loyal. These tribes and commanders were about to see a whole lot of action. The Lakhmids had fallen out with their Persian patrons some years earlier when the Shahanshah perhaps no longer convinced of their usefulness or necessity, appointed a Persian loyalist to rule over the area instead, depriving the tribes of their local influence. Though the bulk of it remained on the Persian side, Lakhmid's support for the empire was weakening, and some tribes had sent emissaries to the nomadic Arabs, asking them to join them in raids along the imperial border. The tribes did not intend to take down the Sassanid empire, but to raid border towns as Arabs had often done before, in order to reassert their dominance over the area. Abu Bakr wrote to Khalid, who was still at Yamama, 
telling him that his next mission was to go north to Iraq, and he sent another man with a smaller army to meet up with some ex-Lahmid tribes as well. The caliph instructed them to offer the tribes they fought against two options, either convert to Islam and join the Arab armies, or pay a tax for non-Muslim communities called the jizya. With these orders, Khalid began the even more impressive second third of his career. With the desert to his back, Khalid was comfortable deploying daring and creative maneuvers that the Arabs had never tried before. His command was noted for its mobility and his skill for boosting the effectiveness of his troops by constantly shifting reinforcements to where they were needed the most. He had 18,000 troops with him when he left Yamama in late March of 633. The first battle he fought with the Sassanids happened near modern-day Basra in Iraq and was called the Battle of the Chains because the Persian infantry was bound together. This may have been to stop them from deserting or to prevent the Arab cavalry from breaking through. In any case, it worked out terribly for the Sassanids and the Arabs inflicted heavy losses on their slightly larger opponent. A week later was the Battle of Walja, where Khalid defeated a Sassanid army twice the size of his. He defeated another similarly oversized army weeks later further north and captured the city of Al-Hira. You may remember that this was the capital of the Lakhmids, the tribal confederacy, once loyal to the Shahanshah. After his third major victory, Khalid's terms began to seem very attractive to the local tribes. A few joined Islam, while most agreed to pay the jizya he stipulated in his peace terms. After the fall of Hira, Khalid went on to lay siege to two other towns in the region. Victory followed victory, and the last battle Khalid fought in Mesopotamia was in Firad, where he faced his largest enemy armies yet. Since Firad was on the frontier between the Sassanid and Byzantine empires, it had garrisons from both of them nearby. We are told that the two forces fought jointly against the Muslim threat, but were beaten by Khalid's superior battle tactics. He allowed them to cross the river to face him, then swiftly flanked them and occupied the bridge, negating their numerical advantage by squeezing them into an ineffective mass. His sieges in Anbar must have taken place in August and September, and the Battle of Firad happened in January of 634. It was shortly after the victory at Firad, probably sometime in February, that Abu Bakr figured what was good for the Lakhmids was good for the Ghassanids. He split 36,000 troops between four commanders and tasked them with resting and administering lands bordering the desert. It's worth noting that only one of these four commanders was not of the Quraysh. These leaders quickly realized that a much larger Byzantine army stationed by Ajnadayn made it dangerous for them to break up, and they wrote Abu Bakr informing him of their situation. The caliph turned to God's unsheathed sword Khalid, who was back in Hera by now, ordering him to leave immediately and to go support Muslim efforts in Syria. This set off the final and most impressive third of Khalid's stellar career, which will outlast this episode. In order to arrive quickly and wield the element of surprise, Khalid took an unconventional route through a dangerously arid patch of the northern desert, leading 9,000 soldiers on camelback. Their march included two days without access to any water, and the Arabs resorted to slaughtering some well-watered camels and drinking the contents of their stomachs for hydration. As usual, his risky gambit paid off, and after a few quick victories against Ghassanid forces along the way, Khalid arrived just in time to relieve one of the four armies, which had been flanked by the Byzantines near Bosra. This isn't today's Iraqi city of Basra, which still didn't exist at the time, 
It was a city in southern Syria which served as a sort of capital for the Ghassanids. In that battle, Abu Bakr's eldest son, the same one that fought against his father and the Muslims, defeated the commander of the Byzantine forces in a duel. Khalid led the Muslims to victory in late June and wasted no time in rallying all available forces to face the major Byzantine army in nearby Ajnadayn. Khalid won that battle too. According to Arab sources, he defeated the Byzantine emperor's brother, Theodore, and opened up all of Palestine for invasion as the bulk of the Byzantine armies retreated northwards. Khalid wrote to Abu Bakr informing him of this success and decided that now that Palestine was secure, the next threat came from Damascus. He won a couple of small battles on his way north, and it was probably around then that he was informed of Abu Bakr's recent death. Abu Bakr passed away in late August of 634, after falling ill a couple weeks earlier. He had ruled as caliph for a little over two years and three months. In his election, he managed to make leadership of the community a right uniquely held by the Quraysh forever after, for better or for worse. He relentlessly fought the Arab tribes that had turned away from Islam and in doing so reunited the peninsula under precisely the same rights and obligation agreed upon by the Prophet. The campaigns he launched against the Sassanid and Byzantine empires were incredibly successful and he honestly had no right to be so lucky. It's truly difficult to appreciate the magnitude of Khalid ibn al-Walid's accomplishments during Abu Bakr's time. Without him, it's not clear whether the Ummah would have survived the early Arab rebellion, let alone provoking two massive empires to its north. Abu Bakr is reported to have taken the title successor to the Prophet both seriously and figuratively. When using the pulpit from which the Prophet would speak to the people, he sat one step lower than the Prophet would. This detail may be apocryphal, but it captures how Muslims think of their first caliph quite well. He was a faithful follower of the Prophet, who sought only to fulfill the responsibilities of his office as closely to his friend's example as he could. During the two weeks of his illness, he asked to meet privately with several prominent members of the Quraysh and asked them all the same question. What do you think of Omar? When some commented that they found him too harsh, he was quick to tell them that Omar only behaved as such because he saw the caliph himself as too soft. It was clear to all that he intended to nominate Omar as his successor, and he directed one of his scribes, Uthman, to write as much in his final testament. We shouldn't be surprised at his choice. Omar was an early companion of the Prophet, Abu Bakr's closest advisor, and of the Quraysh. But we should understand from his straightforward selection of his successor that he did not believe the Ummah had any say in who became caliph. To Abu Bakr, successorship was something that the caliph himself had to decide, as he would be responsible for his decision before God on Judgment Day. I think it's interesting how his reasoning here, like much of his reign, mixed both tribal and Islamic motivations. The political positives of Abu Bakr's reign are clear. He preserved the unity of the Arabian tribes and expanded their reach to new lands. And best of all, he managed to do this without deviating from the Prophet's policies as he understood them. The negatives of his reign, detectable mostly in hindsight, stem from his preference for his tribesmen and neglect of the Ansar and Bani Hashim when it came to positions of leadership, despite their precedence in Islam over most of the Quraysh. Abu Bakr made the choices he was most comfortable with, ruling as a tribal patriarch guided by the example of the prophet he had followed for the last 20-something years of his life. He acted conscientiously with the people's money 
and made no personal gain from his position as caliph. He truly did all he could for the ummah and left it in the hands of the man he deemed most capable of governing its affairs. Before we discuss that man's reign, however, we'll spend the next episode talking about the Byzantine and Sassanid empires to get a better idea of the states they were in before being challenged by the Arabs. Before I end today, I had a couple announcements I wanted to make. I'm not sure if you could tell, but I'm recording this episode in August 2020, over a year after the others around it. I recorded nine episodes back in 2019, but then found a job and got busy for a while, only coming back to this project a few months before COVID-19 took over. Two things have changed about it since. Feedback from those who have listened to the first few episodes helped me realize that I'm not doing enough to simplify matters, and I will strive to be even clearer going forward. Thanks for sticking with me. I'm new to all this and can only hope that my drafting, recording, and audio remastering skills will improve with time. The second development is that this show now has a website, thecaliphs.com. This is where I'll post any important supplemental information on each episode's page. So for today's episode, you can find maps detailing Khalid's path through the Arabs, Sassanids, and Byzantines. More importantly, every episode will have a glossary, which lists any new terms I've used and includes a descriptive reminder of any characters mentioned in the episode. I hope this helps as we make it through the fast-paced and sometimes confusing pre-dynastic era. Please check the website, subscribe so I can notify you when new episodes are out, and use the comment section to leave any questions or remarks you have. Thanks again for listening. You'll hear from me again in two weeks, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>